Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees, plus other useful things we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. You often hear people say they want to do human rights work, but what does that actually mean? In reality, issues involving human rights crop up in loads of different legal jobs. At the BBC, the rights to freedom of expression and privacy are things we're working with all the time. And criminal lawyers are there to protect the right to a fair trial, whether they prosecute or defend. But some lawyers are at the heart of protecting people's human rights, to live freely and be free from harm, even torture. And they're shaping the law in this field. One of those people is our guest on the podcast today, Ahmed Aidid, Public Law Director at Duncan Lewis Listers and multi-award winning human rights lawyer. We predominantly act for uh, refugees, survivors of trafficking, uh, survivors of uh, modern slavery, survivors of torture. We predominantly act for uh, legally aided clients, so those who, who can't afford to pay for private legal representation uh, and who qualify for legal aid. How do they find their way to you and end up in, um, getting your services? Predominantly through uh, individual queries that they'll raise with us, so with the law firm, uh, also through charities, NGOs, when, when an issue arises whereby they need legal representation, they'll uh, send us a query and say, you know, are you able to assist this client? Uh, they're being evicted from their property, they don't have anywhere to live, they're homeless, they're destitute, and the Secretary of State isn't providing them with accommodation or support, or uh, they're at risk of being removed, or they, they've been found and they've been potentially being assisted by them in relation to their uh, trafficking matter. And then obviously they need assistance in, in getting support and assistance and perhaps they're not getting that from the Home Office or the Secretary of State and we then have to come in and assist them. And, and what does that mean at that stage? Do you then go and visit them and, and meet them? Usually they'll come to our offices pre-COVID. A lot of the time it's, you know, they've been through a horrific ordeal and, and it's really just for us to sit there and, and, and try and listen to them and, and take in all of their concerns and give them an opportunity perhaps for the first time to... Uh, of, you know, voice what has happened to them and what they need assistance with. Uh, to tell me if this is wrong, but I can imagine that piecing together their stories might be quite difficult if they're quite complicated or if they've gone through quite traumatic experiences. I can imagine it might be quite hard to kind of piece together exactly what's happened and build up a picture for yourself so you can assess the case. Yes, exactly. And also to expect someone who's gone through so much trauma to turn up at the first appointment and just completely tell you everything about what's happened to them. It's just simply not possible. We have to you know, build a relationship. We have to be able to build their confidence in us, that they trust us, that they're able to discuss these issues with us, you know, give them the opportunity of the time to, to tell you about what's happened to them. When we've built that up, we're able to sit with them and then, you know, really get into what has happened. And a lot of the times the clients will really trust us. They haven't had someone that they've been able to speak to who really invests in them and, and, and wants to assist them. Yeah. And so does that mean that you're always on call for kind of to meet clients or if they have queries and that sort of thing? You're not supposed to, but, you know, um, I do get clients who I've represented years and years ago, you know, contact me. You're so invested in them and in their case and trying to assist them that, you know, you're not really going to say, oh, I apologise, my working hours are nine to five. So you do end up having conversations with clients at eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the evening. You know, also a lot of the times it's urgent. So, you know, someone will turn up at their door and tell them, you know, they're being asked to leave the property tomorrow. Or sometimes they'll get very short notice. They're being told that they're somehow being removed. And there are a lot of things that, you know, really uh, are scary. And, and, and it could be assisted by just us having a, a quick 
quarterly, you know, chat with them and, and then telling them like, you know, we can, if it's not urgent, you'll just let them know that, you know, you're first thing tomorrow morning, let's go through all of this together. If it is urgent, I, I will then deal with it and then, you know, see or who in my team can assist me and, and that we can work together and try and assist this client whatever time of day it's going to be. Yeah, I can imagine it would be incredibly reassuring to be able to pick up the phone and hear you at the other end saying, look, it's going to be okay, I'm I'm on this. I just wondered in terms of some of the clients who are in more difficult situations who might be in detention centres or, or in, in in prison, how do you visit them and, and speak to them and interact with them? So it is really difficult for clients in prison because we'd have to write to them, we'd have to go and see them, you know, they'd have to have the opportunity to be able to call us and phone us and they've got limited times at which they can make phone calls and limited amount of time that they can be on the phone. So that's really, it is really difficult. Clients in detention centers is also extremely difficult for them as well because there's restrictions and limits to their movements and they only have a limited amount of credit that they're able to call you with in, in, a, in a detention center and stuff like that. So it's, it is really, really difficult. But um, yeah, they're able to phone us. So you do get clients calling you from prison at seven, eight o'clock. And it must be a really intimidating environment to go into. Like, what's, it, what's it like when you go in and, uh, and you're in there with your client? Sadly, the, the scariest element of it is the structure, you know, the buildings, the amount of metal around you, the fact that it's people are caged almost really, really are. That's probably mm. the most difficult element is to go into, you know, you walk in and you have this huge door closing behind you and you can just hear the noise and, and then you go into a small room uh, and then you have, you know, a human being walking in and who's having to spend days and weeks and years in, in this. And a lot of the time for things where you wouldn't really expect for someone to have to be in there to protect anybody from them, you know, they'll be in completely nonviolent offences and yet you've got someone in there. So it is really, it's, it's, uh, you feel, you leave there feeling really sad, mainly for the person who you've left behind there because you're able to leave and they're not. And, you know, so we'll have very young clients. So one of the, one example is, our client who are survivors of trafficking who have been forced into cannabis cultivation, for example, and you're assisting them, but they're stuck in there and you ha you're having to leave them in there, you know, and you're trying to go off and work on their cases, but everything takes a period of time. So you're right. And then you have to give the other side, the government, you're going to have to give them time to respond. And that whole period, someone's detained. It is really, really heartbreaking and sad and it's difficult. And I know you've mentioned before and you've written about your experiences kind of going to the jungle, which was, for people that, that don't know, was the sort of asylum seeker camp in Calais. Um, what was that like? It was it was probably the worst kind of experience, you know, that you, I'll have in my life. And, and I, you know, you've as an individual, you will have gone through difficulties yeah. in general in your life. But that is probably one of the most difficult things you go through. Because it's, you have this area that was, you know, on the other side, you have terraced houses, you know, beautiful houses and, and you know, freedom. And then across this bridge, you've got which, what they call the jungle and people living in really bad circumstances, children, a lot of children. When we went out there and we were assisting um, uh, unaccompanied minor refugees, uh, we were taking instructions from, you know, we were with social workers and we were assisting really young children and they're there on their own you know, 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and it's really extremely sad. And, and also it's a really hostile place to be in. The police uh, was extremely hostile towards anyone and everyone in there. Including you. Well, so 
not when they know who you are uh, and what you're doing. So obviously you're able to go in and out and you're, you know, when you're going in, there are a number of heavily armed police officers there and they'll ask you what you're going in for and you'll explain to them that you're a solicitor or you're, we're social, you know, social workers and doctors are going in to assist in charity, you know, uh, people who work at the charities and stuff like that. And, and then they'll, you know, you'll go in and generally, you know, they can, they, uh, you know, they'll know who you are and that's the end of that. But actually on the day when the cap was being closed, I was the only person I was able to uh, get in. And at that point, you know, you know, I looked exactly like everyone else in there, you know, uh, without an ID badge or anything. And then that's when you really felt the hostility. I was almost hit with a baton by one of the police officers because wow. he thought I... Uh, he thought I was one of the, uh, you, you know, one of the people who, who were there and, and, and the journalists, yeah. you know, and we explained, actually, I'm one of the solicitors. But then why should you need to say that to not be hit with a baton? It's outrageous. That's probably one of the saddest times. I've well, exactly what I was wondering was whether having that experience must make you empathise even more with your clients and, and really understand kind of what they're going through if you're also put through a similar situation just when you're visiting them. Y- yes, exactly. But, but also, and this is like one of the questions that we're asked the most about the way that you're able to empathize when you've gone through it yourself, but really you shouldn't have to go through it yourself to understand, you know, it's like such a difficult thing to comprehend is I didn't need to, I didn't have to go through that to understand. I didn't become a solicitor or take up this role because of my own past or anything like that, which is also something else that you're always asked. It's just simply understanding uh, or having empathy for other human beings Mm. and understanding what they're going through. This, uh, these are people who, who aren't, you know, even, I'm not going to say that hardened criminals do me, but they haven't committed any offences. These are children who have been left in difficult circumstances. So I don't understand the need for hostility. But also when you come across clients who who have been trafficked or who've been tortured, it's you don't have to have been tortured or trafficked yourself to understand that, that you know, what they've been through. And it's just horrific. To, and even it's still sad because even at the point at which they're finally able to access justice, it's not as if you can reverse what they've been through. You're simply able to get them. It's so difficult to have to fight for someone to just be able to tell their story or not even mm-hmm. someone who doesn't wish to share it no one wishes to share the you know the horrific ordeals that they've been through but yet you have to share that in order to even be able to access justice and then at the point when you have and your your story has been vindicated somehow you're expected to celebrate that you know what has it happened to you you're, you're supposed to celebrate that it's accepted you know that you've been through a horrific ordeal yeah that's a, re- a really interesting way of looking at it that, that actually victory is just someone else recognizing that you've been through what you've been through exactly that's that was one of the challenges that we brought is um on behalf of survivors of trafficking in the uk and Wales, is that the policy used to be that when you're finally identified as a survivor of trafficking in modern slavery you know individuals would only get 45 days of support so you go through this whole whole ordeal of like explaining what you've been through and and it takes on average over a year and a half to get this decision just the vindication of belief of what's happened to you and then when you finally got that you only got support for 45 days until you were no longer going to have access to doctors or mental health support so a lot of people would need therapy to to be able to cope with what they've been through you need very get very minimal financial support and a lot of people when you're finally taken away and you know, when you're finally able to escape your traffickers you're in a safe house you know so that you can you know that in, individuals aren't, aren't they're unable to find you again you know these 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 criminal gangs aren't able to find you 
And yet after 45 days, you're, you're expected, even sometimes even less than that period, you'd be expected to move on somewhere else. So, and what was happening is people were just left in this vicious circle and cycle where you were just re-trafficked and then you're found again and you only got support for 45 days. So we brought this legal challenge against that policy and the court ruled, you know, that uh, they need to, that policy needs to be suspended immediately at that time. So how did you get into that case and how did you realise the, the problem? In, in that case, uh, we were representing two clients that they were due to lose their support. But then this was a policy that applied to everyone. And then when we saw that trend, we obviously, uh, our clients didn't wish to just bring a challenge on behalf of themselves, but they said, look, this policy also needs to be stopped. Just for people that, that are quite new to this um, area. So was this a judicial review? Yes, yes, bringing? exactly. Yeah. Briefly, what, what, what does that mean? Um, what, what is a judicial review? It's a judicial review. It was a challenge. It was a direct challenge against the policy. So it's a direct challenge against the Home Secretary's policy of only having a 45-day period of support. So an individual brings uh, a direct challenge to a policy or a process that either impacts on them and, and uh, but also impacts on a wider cohort of individuals. So that was the, the lead case that was brought on behalf of our two clients. Is that quite common in, in what you're doing? Yeah, th- that's what our team really specialises in, is bringing lead challenges on behalf of individuals. It doesn't mean that we don't bring very individualised cases as well, which only impact on an individual, e.g. If, if, if an irrational decision is made by any of the public authorities in relation to one individual, but we act on their behalf. But a lot of the time in those detention cases, there'll also be a wider point because a lot of the time there might be a policy in effect, which obviously impacts on a number of people. So of those cases, which is the ones that you're proudest of? It'll be difficult to say because they impact so much on individuals. It really, it's really depends on like the, the people who, who it's impacted on and and how important it was to them. But in, in terms of, in general, that the the policy challenge I told you about, the 45-day rule challenge, that was extremely important because that, that policy was in existence for such a long time. And um, also there was a, uh, a process that the government, well, the Home Secretary used to run where it accelerated decisions in asylum cases. So international protection cases, it was called the fast track process. Uh, what used to happen is you'd be detained during that full period and you were somehow expected to ventilate your claim within a very short period of time. So it, we that process was challenged initially by detention action and then uh, it was declared unlawful. And now it's in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is dealing with what consequentially what should happen in, 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 in the cases that were heard. Now, unfortunately, most of those people would have been removed, a lot of them back into the hands of their persecutors. Uh, I remember in, in these interviews when I used to do them when I was uh, a lot more junior, I was with a client who had horrific scars on his back. Uh, you know, he was tortured for a prolonged period. And he was in, you know, he went through such a horrific ordeal. And yet he's now being re-detained and imprisoned. Now, fortunately, in that particular case, the, the, the caseworker understood that. And obviously, two days after that, we had a... A positive decision but irrespective of that this person was still in prison for that whole period so it's, it's really sad yeah that sounds incredibly sad and when you get to the supreme court because is the case that you mentioned are you working on that one at the supreme court at the moment yes yeah, so that was heard in the supreme court and what's it like being in the supreme court and, and arguing these cases which affect all these individuals that you talk about you know you're under a huge amount of pressure because you want to ensure that this goes well 
for your client and then also for the others you know who are relying on this case you, you try and do everything you can which a lot of the time means days and hours and you know spending time trying to do everything you can to prepare this case and then you've got you know count barristers who are also involved who are, who are going to do the advocacy in that case and all that. you know you, you do everything you can it's extremely difficult and you're under huge amounts of pressure but then also you could positively impact you know on a number of people which is an amazing thing to do which is probably the most rewarding thing in this job is to be able to do just by your clients or to do you know to do just by your clients or simply to ensure that someone has access to justice so when you're able to do that and you're able to impact on others who might not have even had access to justice but can now benefit from that judgment because your client has had access to justice and that subsequently positively impacted on others that's that's a, an amazing feeling to have. I, I get the sense from talking to you that you never separate the legal principle or the legal argument you're making from your clients it's all about them as people and what they're going through is that fair yes it is because it's you know i feel we work for you know we're in a really privileged position to be able to represent our clients you know i wouldn't want to act for anybody else you get huge pleasure out of uh, acting for them you know like they motivate you as well because you you think you're going through difficult times and difficult moments but then when you see what they go through like it motivates you to do better, to be a better person, to to try and do anything you can. And I mean, obviously, your dedication is really, really clear, and it sounds like it's it's pretty exhausting work. And um, presumably, you have a, a team supporting you as well. What's what's the team like, and how many of you are there? Yeah, it's huge support from the team. You know, this is me recollecting uh, things I used to do. A lot of the times, they now see clients. You know, I don't I don't have the pleasure anymore of being able to see clients on a regular basis anymore because you have to manage such a big team. So they are the ones who, who, you know, go into detention centres, who go into prisons and go and see clients in our, in our offices. And it's, a, you know, I'm really lucky to have like a really uh, strong team supporting us and also the firm. And for the more junior members of the team, what's it like coming in? Do they have a lot of responsibility? I imagine they have to kind of take a lot on and, and they can learn quite quickly and it can be quite challenging but also quite rewarding by the sounds of it that's the benefit of being in in this area of law is that you constantly work on cases and issues which are extremely important not just to your individual client but also in terms of processes you 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 know working on cases where the court is deciding whether the government went beyond its powers uh dealing with cases where you're bringing a challenge to a policy that's been in existence for years and has impacted on so many people. And you're able to vindicate that claim, win that case for your client. And in effect, that policy or that process is declared unlawful. That is a huge thing to be able to work on when you're so, you know, so early on in your career. You know, you're working on cases in the Supreme Court, in the Court of Appeal, in the High Court, you know, the highest courts in the country. And you're working for individuals whose cases are so important to them, you know, and it really to them it is that case is everything to them it means escaping persecution escaping death and in order for them to be able to win that case they are able to get away from that so this case is extremely important for your client and to be able to work on that is a huge responsibility but also hugely rewarding when you're able to vindicate your client's claim so it's it's really extremely rewarding to be in this area you're not going to be sat there working on papers and and no human you know consequence of it or uh, you know it's it's definitely not uh, boring in the sense of our area you know the way it's usually seen 
Well, I mean, not to say that my training was, was boring, but it's a world away from kind of training in the city, I think, and, you know, working on, 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 on files and, and deals and litigation and so on, where I suppose sometimes if you're working in a big firm, the responsibility you have might be a bit less because you're a smaller cog in a, in a bigger wheel. I wondered what skills caseworkers and paralegals and trainees and more junior solicitors would need to work in, in your team and work in this area of law. And resilience sounds like it's up there, but what other skills do you think are needed? Definitely you have to have empathy. Uh, I'll, I'll start with the human elements that you need to have, and then we'll get on to the legal uh, you know, skills and, and drafting that you need to have, which is extremely important. But also you have to be able to empathise with your clients. You know, Someone isn't going to disclose their most intimate moments to you in terms of all the persecution, anything that they've gone through, unless you know they're, they're able to disclose that to you on the, you know, understanding and knowing that you're going to assist them and do the best that you can. So you have to be able to have empathy. You have to be able to have a, a humane conversation with someone. Most important thing is listening to them. It isn't really for you to sit there and talk. It's about, it's their case. It's empowering an individual to take up their case and for you to simply be going alongside them and ensure that things are done lawfully and legally and, and that you point out to them when something happens they will actually you know the government isn't supposed to do this or this decision maker is supposed to take this into consideration for you and it's them for them to decide whether they wish to challenge that or not and a lot of the times you know they wouldn't understand that they'd even have that right or are able to do that so those are hugely important issues you've got to have you have to be passionate about working in this area it's just simply not possible it's very difficult to do anything without uh, being passionate but the, yeah, but in terms of legally, it's really you have to have really good drafting skills. You, you, you have to be able to get your head around really complex areas of law because what you're looking at here is whether a public authority has acted outside of its powers, whether a public authority has acted irrationally, whether you know they, these are such complex areas of law. You have to be able to get your head around that. You have to be able to spot those issues. You have to be able to spot the policy issues that potentially are unlawful. And you have to be able to get something across to an individual without taking 500 pages to be able to make a point. Brevity is key. Brevity is key. You've got to be able to get the most complex issues across to someone in the most simplest form and in the shortest form. That's important both for your client, but also when making legal arguments, because a judge is simply not going to be able to listen to you going on for five hours. I mean, it sounds incredibly challenging and it sounds like it's the combination of, of really rewarding, but also also quite difficult sometimes emotionally to go through and um, work to do. So as, as a junior um, solicitor or, or a trainee or someone considering working in this area, how do you how do you balance that? What advice would you give to someone who's thinking this sounds so rewarding and, and so inspiring and I'd love to make a difference like this? but I'm quite scared of the emotional impact it will have. There are there are huge positives to being in this area. You know, I get my friends contacting me, irrespective of how well they've done in their own areas, wanting to work in public law, working in, you know, human rights law. So, and, and really the reason why it is, because it's firstly, it's so interesting to be in this area of law. You're having a direct impact on policies, processes, in the UK, you're having a direct impact on the law. You're, we're constantly working on cases where pre legal precedent is set. That the, the case that I was referring to you before, that's in the Supreme Court now, that, is, that was one of the first cases and it deals with the principle of nullity. If something, if the government has acted outside of its powers, what's the, this, what's the process or what's the consequence of decisions made under that? 
it's hugely interesting areas of law which are going to be referred to in other cases and throughout this area for years to come. You know, you set a, your your clients and their cases set precedent, and you have a direct impact on that. But also, there are other areas which, if that is what motivates you, then that would you know that would be very beneficial for you to come into. For example, you know, you, you the cutting edge case and the cutting edge challenges that we bring, you are awarded in that area. But probably mostly it's going to be your own personal satisfaction. But also the people that you work with, you by working through these cases and working together on these cases, you develop friendships and bonds that go well beyond work. You know, you spend eight hours together working on such hugely interesting things that, you know, you develop really strong friendships and bonds. And, and also the work is simply very, very interesting. If you become very good at your job, all you need to ensure is that your clients are successful and then they're able to recover most of their legal costs. So that's also an issue is really the better and how good at your job is really directly linked to all of this. So it's extremely rewarding to work in this area. So that was Ahmed Aidid, Director of Public Law at Duncan Lewis. And, and just coming out of that conversation, Bridget, I mean, there was so many, so many things that he said. And but I mean, one of the things that jumped out at me was how he described being in a, in a prison or in a detention center or in the jungle at Calais and, and just how the thing separating him from from the people that are, were interned was just his job title and you know his status as a solicitor. I mean, I've never been in that environment, but I can't even imagine what it's like. I had a, an experience when I was younger in Australia. So we also have a system of um, immigration detention for some asylum seekers. And I went into this detention center with a group it was in the, on the outskirts of Sydney at a place called Villawood. And it was to visit, uh, the purpose of our, our trip was to visit a Nigerian family um, who had applied for asylum because the mother and daughters in this family were going to experience female genital mutilation if they ha- if they didn't leave Nigeria. So they were fleeing on grounds of gender-based persecution. And we went in to visit the kids. They had these really little kids in the family and we were just there to offer support. And I remember taking in a soft toy for one of the little girls into this detention centre, which, as mm-hmm. Ahmed was describing, are effectively prisons. And the toy was ripped apart. It was like a soft plush toy. It was like ripped apart by the security guards to determine if there was, I guess, any contraband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. relatively young at the time. I was like a teenager. And I remember just being sort of fixated at this process watching these watching these security guards rip this teddy bear away mm-hmm. and it was just this insane experience where they then handed it back to me the teddy bear was in shreds <laughs> to yeah and just this lack of i guess humanity um so that was quite powerful and i thought it was really interesting that ahmed talked about the skills when you asked him you know what skills does a does a young lawyer who's interested in in this kind of role this kind of profession, you know, working in public law and migration law, what do they need? Before he got onto any legal skills, drafting, whatever, he spoke about empathy. I thought that was really telling. It's really telling, isn't it? And it was also interesting that, I mean, obviously you need the excellent analytical skills and you need the excellent drafting and sometimes the advocacy skills as well that you need in private practice or in in, in working in private areas of law and for private clients. But also you need, yeah, exactly this empathy um, with your clients to get their trust, which are, is fascinating. And I just, it just must be so difficult to, to meet someone and get them to trust you and tell you their story so that you can then 
you know, advocate for them. I suppose that, that brings the other part of his job or the other part of his cases where he sees a trend and then suddenly he's got a group litigation or, you know, judicial review where he kind mm. of, where you have a, something where you're challenging the policy itself rather than the individual case, which is fascinating because you can yeah. affect the lives of thousands of people with one particular case. Mm. That's something I've actually found in a lot of our conversations on this podcast, talking to solicitors like Ahmed who pick up individuals' cases and get to know their clients really well but the case might unravel a key error in the law or a gap in the law and there ends up, as you said, being yeah, a judicial review or a Supreme Court decision or some policy change that has widespread change. And I think that's one of the, the big takeaways for me on, on this podcast is talking to some of these incredible solicitors and, and barristers that we've met who have an impact that is wider than just a brief or a matter that they've picked up on a particular day. It's it's really, um, really inspiring. Yeah, and it's just a completely different route. With Ahmed, we realised we were at the same law school at the same time. I didn't know him. Yeah. But it's fascinating that you could take a completely different route from the same law school and end up yeah. doing an entirely different job and, you know, working, you know, for the BBC or in the city versus working uh, in, in these kind of public law cases and just the options out there. That's one thing from the podcast that totally. hopefully people will take is that there are so many different Roles so many pathways there. yeah there are thousands of different jobs and different routes you can take Ahmed and his team mostly represent people who cannot afford to pay for legal advice so their work is funded by legal aid if you're interested in this type of work take a look at the young legal aid lawyers website there's loads of information on there and we posted the link to it in our show notes you can find more episodes of the podcast on apple spotify acast and anywhere you find good podcasts Make sure to like, review and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And you can find us on Instagram. Just search NotAllLawyersPod and use the hashtag NotAllLawyers. Please do get in touch. We would love to hear your questions. This has been Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees from the BBC Legal Team.